Okay. Um, announcement, because everybody by now ought to be logged in. And, and uh, <clears throat> Thursday night, um, I, sometimes I think I'm boring everybody with announcements until I get questions the day of Christmas Eve going, are we having communion tonight? After for six weeks of announcing a candlelight communion service, and then people on Christmas Eve said, "What now? Now it's it's not going to meet at 7:30." And then I told I I, I replied. Somebody emailed in, and I sent it to, out, and Barb saw it, and I said, "How many times do I need to announce these things before people get it?" And she replied, "Yeah, 10:20. Yeah, you're right, John." She she replied, "You wouldn't believe how many people." showed up at church on pre-trib Tuesday night after announcing for two months no Bible class on that night. People still showed up and sent in emails going, well, where is everybody? Rapture, yes. (laughs) And um, so announcements are important, and we need to keep the announcements on the audio and video because when people don't listen to the next day and the announcements have been expunged from the audio then the people who need to hear those announcements don't hear them, and they send in emails going, how come I can't live stream tonight? Because there's no class tonight. (laughs) So we need to keep announcements on the stream, on the recording, so that people who log in a day or two late can figure out what's really going on. Okay, that's my rant for the night. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Because scripture says that we either walk by the spirit or we walk according to the flesh. And when we start walking according to the flesh, we have to recover, which means we have to confess our sins, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sins to the Lord. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're ready to study the word this evening. And then I'll open in prayer. Father, what a wonderful privilege it is to serve you, to have another day, another week, to be on this earth where we can glorify you, where we can uh, make the truth of the gospel clear to those we come in contact with, and that we can be uh, used by you to serve the body of Christ. Father, above all, we need to be trained so that we are effective servants for you, and that means we need to know your word. We need to have it drilled into our thinking so that we can't forget it. Father, we pray that tonight as we study large chunk of Scripture that you'll help us to uh, see the flow of uh, action taking place within Samuel and come to uh, be able to come to a better understanding, better memory of what happens in these, uh, these large books. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, tonight we're going to do a flyover. This is an A-level lesson, and what that means is I divide lessons into three categories, A-level, B-level, and X-level. No, C-level. Just seeing if you're awake. Uh, 
A-level headings are overviews, flyovers. B-level, when we go verse by verse through uh, the section. And C-levels are when we break out from a, se- uh, a section and deal with the topics or the doctrines that are in those sections. So that way people can go back later if you're teaching in prep school or you're somewhere else, you're teaching Sunday school or you're a seminary student and you need to have uh, quick information on a passage then you can go in and get one of the A-level lessons, and that will help you work through it um, rather quickly. So tonight we're going to look at this first section, or actually it's the second section of the book on Saul. And that's a little bit of a misnomer. It's Saul and Samuel, just as when we get to the last third of the book, 16 to 31, it is going to be Saul and David. But this is... Uh, Samuel, the first uh, seven chapters, and then Saul. And what we see in Saul is that he is in, he's being contrasted to what will come, God's ideal for a king, which is a man after God's own heart, a man who is devoted to serving the Lord. That doesn't mean they're perfect. Uh, David certainly failed many times in many egregious ways, but his heart's desire was to serve the Lord and to... Um, Focus on him. Excuse me, I'm still fighting the residuals from that flu. Okay, as we looked at this, I've seen, gone through this so many times the last few lessons, I think people would be bored, but if they don't pay any more attention to this than they do the announcements, then they may be, you may be looking at this for the first time. Remember, Thursday night at 7 o'clock, okay? New Year's Eve, don't forget that. All right, so we have Samuel, the first seven chapters. Chapter 8 is really sort of a transition. It's the setup for 9 through 15, and those seven chapters are what we're going to focus on tonight. It's the rise of Saul, and we see an interplay between Saul and Samuel in these chapters with the ultimate demise of, of Saul when God rips the kingdom from him for his disobedience in 1 Samuel 15. Now, he's still king, and he's still going to reign as king. And this is a type, the second half is a type of living in the world today. David is anointed in chapter 16, just as the Lord Jesus Christ is uh, the anointed, as it were, the anointed, he's the Messiah, the anointed Davidic king for the kingdom But the church age is like that period in David's life between his anointing and the death of Saul. Saul is still the king, just as the devil is still the ruler of this age and the prince and the power of the air. Jesus Christ does not come back to establish his kingdom until he returns the second time. There's no kingdom right now in any way, shape, or form except the sort of generic rule of God over his creation. Uh, Jesus Christ is not ruling from the right hand of God the Father in heaven. He is not seated on his throne. He is seated at the right hand of God. And and as Revelation uh, 3.22 says, he is seated on the throne of God, not on his own throne yet. That doesn't occur. He is not enthroned until the second coming. Now, last time, as we were wrapping up uh, 1 Samuel 7... I pointed out that what God is doing in this section between uh, 8 and 31 with the reign of Saul 
is he's giving the Israelites what they want. They want a man after their own heart, not a man after God's heart. And so God is going to give them what they want so that they can see what a disaster that is. And that is often a pattern that God uses in our own lives. We're stubbornly rebellious, and so he gives us what we think we want, and it just brings misery into our life. And this is a pattern we see, as I ended up last time, I pointed this out in Romans 1, how uh, there is the depiction of the human race rejecting the uh, nonverbal general revelation of God, and so God then turns them over to uh, the lusts of their hearts. And there's three stages. I don't have all those verses up here, but there's three stages mentioned in Romans 1, 24 and following that God gives us over to our depraved desires. The same kind of thing was seen with the Exodus generation when they rebelled against God because they got bored with eating manna every day, every meal for 40 years. Now, you know, we might make light of that, but many of us would have a tough time if we just had to eat manna every day for every meal for 40 days and 40 nights, not just 40 years. So they complained, and God said, you want meat? I'm going to overstuff you with meat. And he brought this huge flock of quail in, and quail just you know, fell on the ground everywhere. They ate the quail until they were sick. And <clears throat> Psalm 106.15 summarizes that and says God gave them their request, but he sent leanness into their soul. Often what we think we want in terms of the details of life are the worst thing possible because that desire, that lust flows out of a wrong conception of, of happiness. So this is what is going to happen in this in the section with Saul. Saul is a lesson on what we don't want. God often gives us the leaders that we deserve. And Israel, because of their rebelliousness towards God, gets a, a leader who reflects their human viewpoint values and their pagan thinking. And the result is that it is just destructive to uh, <clears throat> to them so that we start this period when we're looking at, at chapter 8 the Philistines are still the power source, the main enemy, but they have, uh, they're, they're basically on the fringes. They were, they've been defeated. But by the time we get to chapter 31 in 1 Samuel, what's happened to the Philistines? They have recovered to the point where they give, uh, deliver a massive defeat to the Israelite army of Saul on Mount Gilboa. Saul falls on his sword. Uh, Jonathan is killed, his other sons are killed, and Israel suffers a massive uh, defeat. But out of that defeat, David will rise as the next king, and he is the one who will finally uh, defeat the Philistines so that they will no longer be a military problem uh, for, for Israel. Now, as we start in this section, starting in 1 Samuel chapter chapter 9, we see that God leads Samuel to select uh, Saul to be the next king. And if we read in those first two verses, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power, which is an idiom for someone of great wealth and great 
uh, prestige. And he had, that is, Kish had a choice and handsome son whose name was Shaul, which is which means to be asked of God. So there's a uh, interesting irony there that as the people have asked for a king, they get a man whose name is to ask. He was asked for. Uh, there was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. He looked like a king. He was head and shoulders taller than anybody else, which is interesting because if you look at American elections, Americans have never, pay attention to this, identify the candidate I'm talking about, Americans have never elected a short man for president. Never. A lot of you want a short man to be president. Be forewarned. Americans have never done that. Americans, especially since the advent of film and television, a lot of Americans vote on cosmetics. Just talk to Tricky Dick Nixon about that after his debate with Kennedy. That plays a huge part. Just saying, this is part of American policy. People want a leader that looks like a leader. What you think of as the Hollywood image of of a leader, that uh, Moses has to look like Charlton Heston, not like Marty Feldman. Okay? Paul probably looked more like Marty Feldman than he did like Charlton Heston. So we have to be careful. God looks on the heart, not on the outside. But the lesson here is that those who want a king that looks kingly, they like Saul. He On the outside, he looks great. But what we're going to learn is that in terms of his character, not so much. So it starts off, the fact, extolling Saul, and we're introduced to him, and this is the one God is going to uh, choose to be the king of Israel because he's giving Israel what they want, not what they ought to have, but what they deserve to have. And the last verse of this section, at the end of chapter 15, In the last part of the verse, we read that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king of Israel. So that those are the bookends for this section. God is going to lead Samuel to anoint Saul. And at the end, God says he regretted. Now, that's just an anthropopathism to communicate God's uh, uh, disapproval of what Saul did as king. But God knew that all along. This was God's permissive will. In God's permissive will, he allows people the exercise of their volition to make bad or foolish decisions and to reap the consequences uh, thereof. So what we see here is that God is going to teach Israel, uh, is going to use Saul to teach Israel the consequences of their poor values and their poor uh, decisions. And in the first the first chapter of, of this division, well, the transition chapter was chapter 8, but in this first main chapter, God is going to select uh, Saul to be the king. This goes from 9-1. I don't have the outline on the, on the slides. It's going to go from 9-1 down through 10-16, 9-1 through 10-16, and here we see God specifically uh, chooses Saul to be king. But we know from Genesis 49.10, 
Genesis 49.10, Jacob is giving a prophecy about each of his sons, the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel, and he came to Judah and he said that the scepter, which is the sign of a ruler, the scepter will never depart from the tribe of Judah. Judah will, the tribe of Judah will provide the ruler that ultimately culminates in the Messiah. That's an early messianic prophecy. But Saul is not from Judah. Saul is a Benjamite. And if we think in terms of a broader picture of scripture, at the end of the book of Judges, what did we learn about the tribe of Benjamin? These guys are spiritually rebellious. They instigated a civil war. They're apostates. And in, in fact, they, they generated the civil war, Benjamin, against all of the other tribes that was so severe that the other tribes made, took an oath that they would not give any of their daughters to marry a Benjamite. What's the natural consequence of that going to be? It's going to be the end of the tribe of Benjamin. But what happened at the end of that, there was a, they did some second thinking, and, but they had already made a vow, so they had to keep the vow that they had made. But they realized that they couldn't decimate the Benjamites like that. So there was, they looked to see if there was anybody, any Israelites that had not participated in that vow. And there was one group that didn't, and they were from an area called, across the Jordan, called Jabesh Gilead. Now this is up here, where you see it on the map. Um, Jabesh Gilead is on, in the Transjordan area, and it's just across, uh, directly uh, east of Mount Gilboa and Beit Shan. Those of you who've been to Israel, we've gone to Beit Shan. The modern city is what's in the foreground. If you remember, looking at Beit Shan, there's a uh, large hill or tell in the back. That's the ancient city of Beit Shan. Um, What's interesting is that there are two occasions where Jabesh Gilead plays a significant role in, in, in Saul's life. And this was something I just put together this today, is that, that Saul, Saul's mother or grandmother was probably one of the daughters of, one of the women of Jabesh Gilead that married Benjamites. So, because there's this interesting connection two or three times in the life of Saul, Jabesh Gilead plays this significant role. Uh, initially, we're going to see in uh, chapter 11 that they're, they're attacked by Nahash the Ammonite, and he raises an Israelite army to go rescue them. And then at the end of Saul's life, after he's killed on Mount Gilboa, which as you see is right, right up here, uh, and, and, and Bethshan is just to the east of Mount Gilboa, uh, just off the eastern shoulder of Mount Gilboa, actually that ridge line, that that the 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 uh, Gentiles, the Canaanites who lived in Beit Shan, took Saul's body in his head because they, the the Philistines decapitated him, and they hung his carcass and his head on the walls of of Beit Shan. But then we're told that the men of Jabesh Gilead came over in a night raid and recovered the remains of Saul and took him back across the river and buried him in Jabesh Gilead. 
Now, I never thought about that before until I put these things together because the story about the, the wives is over in Judges, and this is in, uh, this is in, in, in Samuel, so we tend to disconnect uh, events like that. But why didn't they bury Saul down in, in Gibeah, which is his hometown? It's because this is where his mother's relatives would have been. This is why there's this connection between uh, Jabesh, Gilead, and Saul. So that's just a little insight into how the text of Scripture uh, hangs together, how there's a consistency uh, within the Word of God. So uh, when the last time we read about the tribe of Benjamin at the end of, of Judges, it's not a good thing. They're apostates. There's, there's all this negative foreshadowing in Judges related to the tribe of Benjamin. So we, if we're knowledgeable and we're reading through the text, we'd say, why in the world is God pulling out somebody from this loser tribe uh, in, in Israel? And it's because he's going to teach uh, Israel a lesson. So he se- selects uh, Saul. He looks good, looks the part. And the first image we see of him is of someone who can't really take care of the livestock well. This is a negative picture of leadership. A leader in Israel is a good shepherd. He's able to take care of the livestock. But Saul is not a good herdsman. He loses donkeys. He can't find his asses with both hands. So he is, uh, he's out looking for them. And he passes through the land, various, these, these territories will cover, but they're just sort of, uh, uh, allotments of land to different families. And so a lot of times in this overview, we're just going to be going back to the map. And he's down in this area of Gibeah, which is his hometown, which is about maybe 10 miles or so north of Jerusalem. And so there, he's looking for the, uh, looking for the donkeys. And they come to uh, the the area of the land that is owned by by Zuf, and he's he's been gone for quite a while from Gibeah. He seems to exhibit a few positive things. He's concerned about his father, that his father might be worried because they've been gone so long and they haven't returned. And that he tells his servant, "Let's go home." Uh, lest my father worry too much about us. And the servant says, well, wait a minute. There is a man of God who lives in this town, and Ramah is located just close to that, and that's where, of course, where 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 Samuel was from. And he says, there's a man, man of God here. Let's go and see if he can show us what we should do. So the servant seems to be thinking, let's let's get a little divine guidance here as to how to solve the problem. But Saul also exhibits something of his... Um, ignorance because he doesn't know anything about the presence of Samuel at all in that that location. This is very close to his home. But he does, on the other hand, he exhibits a certain uh, graciousness and recognizes that if they're going to go to the prophet, they should bring a gift. They should bring an offering. And he says, well, wait a minute, we don't have anything to take. And the servant says, wait a minute, I've got a fourth of a shekel of silver here so we can we can take that to him and give him a gift. So they go uh, to the city where the man of God was, which is Ramah. And as they go to the city, they meet some women. They say, well, the man of God is coming to offer a sacrifice today uh, in the city. And so you can catch up with him just ahead. So uh, they, they're following in Samuel's footsteps. And the Lord, we're told in verse 15, um, had informed Samuel that 
the day before that, that Saul would be coming. And in verse 16, we read, Tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. So this is part of God's purpose. If Saul had been obedient, he could have been the one to deliver them from the hands of the Philistines. This is one of those passages that I go to every now and then showing that God knows what would happen, what could happen, and what should happen. He knows the possibilities, what might happen if certain things had happened. So Saul, there, that potential is there because of uh, Saul's volition, but because of his negative volition, he's not able uh, to deliver the people. So when Samuel sees Saul come up to him, uh, the Lord speaks to him again and reveals to him that this is the man uh, whom he had spoken about the day before who will reign over my people. So as Saul comes up, uh, Saul asks him where he can find Samuel, and he Samuel introduces himself, but he says he's on his way to the high place to offer a sacrifice and to go with him. And then he tells him, don't worry about your donkeys. So they're, they're taken care, care of. They have uh, been found and are on the way home. And then he informs him that on you, all the desire of Israel focuses. Uh, you're going, in other words, he tells him, you're going to be the king and you're going to be the first, the first king. And, but Saul has a reticence. He's hesitant. He's not confident. We see this show up a couple of times. He's, which indicates positively Saul is not in this initially for power. He's not interested in power. He would rather stay uh, back um, out of sight and not take on the responsibility. But Samuel tells him that that he's the one that God has, has selected, and then he brings him to a place of honor for dinner, gives him a special cut of meat to indicate his place of, uh, of privilege and blessing, and then um, uh, the next day, he uh, he sends Saul on, on his way. Saul uh, has, and, and, and then they meet. Verse 27, as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel says to Saul, tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And then uh, he announces, he's going to announce to him the word of God. And it's at that point that he's going to anoint him. So it's a private ceremony. But I point this out many times. We live in a world today of, of quasi-mysticism, especially in a lot of denominations and among a lot of Gentile, I mean, not Gentile, evangelicals. You hear people make sloppy statements. God spoke to me. I'm praying that God would give me guidance. It's a soft form of, of mysticism. And people say, well, God spoke to me and told me to do this. And this, again, is not how God works in the present church age with the closing of the canon. There's no more revelation uh, of any kind. We have all that we need. That's the sufficiency of Scripture. What we see in the Old Testament is even when God speaks privately or does something privately, he always confirms it publicly so that nobody can just come along and say, well, God spoke to me. There has to be confirming objective uh, attestation that God has really spoken to somebody. Otherwise, anybody can do it. This was one of the tests of the prophets back in Deuteronomy 18. If anyone comes along and says, thus says the Lord, 
what they say has to conform to previous revelation. It has to be consistent with, with what God has said. So we have a private episode that takes place here at the beginning of chapter 10 where Saul is going to be anointed. But then there are going to be three things that Samuel says will validate uh, this anointing. In verse 3 we read, you'll go forward from there, uh, that is, as he's uh, <clears throat> headed back towards uh, his, t- uh, his home. He, verse 3 says, you'll go on forward from there and come to the terebinth tree of Tavor. And there three men are going up to God at Bethel. Now here's our map. Here's uh, uh, Bethel is located, here's Jericho, right here, north of Gibeah. So this is about another um, 10 miles or so up to Bethel. And he says you're going to find three men, not two, not four. It's very specific. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you. One is going to carry, be carrying three young goats. I want to know how he was doing that. Okay, What kind of backpack does he have? I mean, he's only got two arms. Where is he carrying the third one? Inquiring minds want to know. Uh, you carry three young goats and another carrying three loaves of bread and another carrying a skin of wine. So it's very specific uh, objective data that's going to confirm what Samuel has said. So they'll greet you, they'll give you two loaves of bread, which you will receive from them, and after that you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it will happen when you've come there to the city. This is the second sign. When you come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them. So they have a little string quartet. Okay, they've got their uh, rhythm section with the tambourine. They've got a stringed instrument of some kind and a flute and a harp, and they will be prophesying. Now, this is one of those passages everybody gets to, and they go, well, what does this mean they'll be prophesying? Because we think of prophecy in a couple of ways. One is bringing a condemnation against the people of God by a prophet who functions like uh, an attorney general or district attorney from the high court of heaven bringing an indictment against the Israelites. And that indictment often includes the second thing that we think of when we think of a prophet, and that is some sort of foretelling of a future event that will take place. But prophecy per se is not necessarily uh, foretelling the future, but it is bringing a message of condemnation against the people uh, in a judicial kind of context, reminding them of their uh, covenant responsibilities and charging them with uh, covenant, disobe- uh, co- covenant disobedience. So when we think of prophesying, a group with a string quartet coming down and playing beautiful music doesn't quite fit our picture of prophesying, does it? This is where, and, and I have read and read and read on, on these issues for 30 years, and I'm so glad that back when I was in seminary, there was a wonderful article written by uh, a professor who's long since gone to be with the Lord named Leon Wood, who wrote a commentary on Judges and a number of other Old Testament commentaries, one on Daniel. And he wrote a, an article that appeared in the Evangelical, or the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, and the title was, Were the Prophets of the Old Testament Ecstatic? And see, when we live in a post-charismatic world, 
this is this is our familiarity. We think of something in terms of what's what's co- common to us in our experience, and that is this these ecstatic utterances of the charismatic. So the prophets must have been ecstatic. Wrong. Ecstasy was the modus operandi of the of the pagans. God does not operate through ecstasy. He spoke objectively, either privately or where it could be heard by others, to those to whom he was communicating. And so it, we can't read preconceived notions into the text. But there are hints in Scripture that prophecy has a broader range of meaning than either of the two options that I've given you. And we see this um, <clears throat> over in 1 Chronicles 25, 2, and 3. And there's a list there of the musicians in the temple. And it says, of the sons of Asaph. Now, most of you may not recognize the name of Asaph, but if you read through the Psalms, you will discover that there are, that a number of the Psalms have been written by Asaph. So he's a lyricist. He has written the lyrics for these hymns in the worship of Israel. He's a musician. Of the sons of Asaph, and it lists Zakur, Joseph, Netaniah, Asherilah, the sons of Asaph, were under the direction of Asaph. That's like a choir director or band director, orchestra director, who prophesied according to the order of the king. Now, if that was the only verse... We wouldn't necessarily think that we're talking about music. But read on to the next verse. Of Jeduthun, the sons of Jeduthun, this was, uh, uh, the sons of Jeduthun were another uh, descendant in the priestly line there. Uh, Gedaliah, Zeri, uh, Jeshiah, Shemai, Hashabiah, Mattathiah, six, under the direction of their father Jeduthun, who prophesied with a harp to give thanks and to praise the Lord. So there it defines prophecy in relation to uh, the writing of psalms and singing of psalms of thanks and praise to God. Now, to further help us understand this is part of the definition of prophecy, remember in, in Exodus, after the, the Israelites got across the Red Sea and God delivered them, Miriam, Moses' sister, writes a hymn of victory over the Pharaoh. And it's introduced by the fact that Miriam the prophetess said, and then you have this long hymn that she writes. And then in Judges chapter 6, you have Deborah, who is a judge, and then we're told Deborah is also a prophetess. And Judges chapter 6 is a long hymn, a long psalm of praise to God for giving them victory over Sisera and the Canaanites. So when we think of what's going on here, don't think of some sort of uncontrolled, uh, ecstatic uh, event that's taking place, but that you have a group of prophets here, and their function is in the arena of music and writing uh, music and psalms for the praise of God in the worship of God at the at the tabernacle. And so that's what who... Um, Saul runs into, and he begins, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. You're going to be changed. 
And that doesn't mean that there's some kind of ecstatic thing happened, but the Spirit of God comes upon him, and this is like an inspiration kind of thing, and he will be working and singing these hymns of praise with these other, uh, with these other prophets. And let it, and that's the only thing that makes sense in context, because it's emphasizing music and instruments and everything else, and it fits with the broader use of the term. Then in verse 7, we let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings. So he is sent at this point to Gilgal, where he is going to have to wait for seven days for Samuel to show up. And this is where we learn of his first major, major flaw in this particular event. Uh, we're told in verse 9, so it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. This isn't his personal regeneration, but it wouldn't be true unless he was already regenerate. So I believe Saul is already saved. And then we read, when they came to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him, and the Spirit of God came upon him. He prophesied among them. This is not going to happen if somebody's not regenerate already. And And so I put this on the slide. Then uh, verse 11, it happened when all who knew him formerly saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets, that the people said to one another, what is this that had come upon the son of Kish? Notice they're, 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 they don't understand what's going on. They're saying, his father's not a prophet. How can he be a prophet? And the response is that a man there answered and said, but who is their father? In other words, when you look at these other prophets, their father wasn't a pro- their fathers weren't prophets either because... The gift of prophecy doesn't come through physical inher- inheritance from generation to generation, father to child. It's a giftedness of God. That just helps understand that passage uh, passage a little bit. So this is all part of the evidence. And then from there, Samuel is going to call the people together uh, at Mizpah. Let me go back here. And at, at, at uh, let's see if Mizpah is on the map here. Mizpah. Uh, should be up in this area north of Jericho. It's not on the map. Uh, gathers people there together at Mizpah. This is where they have a covenant, had had a covenant renewal ceremony, uh, earlier in, after the conquest. And he is going to warn them. Notice what Samuel says in verse 18. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 19, today you've rejected your God who himself saved you from all your adversaries and your tribulations. You've said to him, no, said a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by tribes and by your clans. So as we looked at the, the structure I'm giving you, we saw the anointing of Saul in chapter 9, 1 through 10, 16. But starting in 10, 17, we have this this. The, the public anointing of, of Saul, and then there's a challenge uh, that comes from, uh, from, from Samuel to obedience to God. And he reminds them again that God is the one who acted in history. He intervened in history, and he's the one who delivered Israel from, from Egypt. Notice how many times God is referred to as the God who brought you up out of, out of Egypt. Going back to if that event was just legend, then all of these other things that are built upon that would fall apart. So Samuel brings all the tribes together in this section, and he goes through a process of elimination, eventually uh, going through until he has Saul standing before him, and he can't find Saul. Saul is back with the baggage train, 
and he is hiding out. And again, this probably shows that he's not really eager to take on the responsibility and to be the king. So he's not someone who is actively seeking this kind of authority uh, within Israel. And then we have sort of a uh, telling event that occurs in verses 25 to 27. Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty. Okay, you're going to have a king. This is how the king is respected. This is the level of authority that the king has. He he gives them the uh, instructions, writes it down for them in a book, and then he sends all the people away. Saul goes home. Here he's just been anointed king. Where's he going to go? He just goes home, back to be with dad, and take care of the donkeys. But um, there were some men who were rejecting this, verse 27, but some rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. This is negative foreshadowing that something, you know, some people at least recognize that Saul's not the right guy for the job and they may be in trouble. Well, I pointed out that there were three objective events to validate the private anointing of Saul. The first was the three men carrying the goats and the loaves and the wine. The second was the group of prophets that that Saul ran into uh, coming down from uh, from the city where the Philistine garrison was located. And the third event is this uh, battle that takes place and is described in chapter 11. Jabesh Gilead, which I mentioned earlier, is under assault from uh, the Ammonites. Here is modern-day Ammon. In the ancient world, it was called Rabbah, and it's the capital of Ammon. And the Ammonites, under their leader Nahash, has invaded and has surrounded Jabesh Gilead, and they are on the verge of being destroyed. And he's going to make a covenant with them that if they will surrender, uh, he will take the right eye of everyone as a sign that they have been defeated by him. Uh, Verse 2, on this condition I'll make a covenant of peace with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh Gilead said, well, let's just wait a little bit. Why don't you hold off about seven days and we'll see what happens. And so they sent messengers to Gibeah to Saul, and Saul raises an army, and Saul comes with uh, 330,000 Israelites, according to verse 8, and they... I have 300,000 from all of Israel, 30,000 from Judah, and they uh, attack and defeat the army of, of Nahash. And so the third validating event is that God gives his anointed one the ability to defeat the enemies of Israel. Now, that's an important principle because we're going to see this happen with David. David is going to be anointed in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And what happens in 1 Samuel 17? He defeats Goliath. And so we see this pattern that, that because this foreshadows that the role of the Messiah, the role of Jesus, will be to defeat the enemy of mankind, uh, who is Satan. So after the defeat of, um, of the people, uh, we read in verse 12, and the people said to Samuel, who is he who said shall Saul reign over us? Let's go find those rebels. You, you've given us victory. You've shown that uh, God has anointed you. Let's go uh, execute these, these men who were rebellious. And Saul shows graciousness 
In verse 13, he says, not, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So remember, before the battle and everything, Saul had said, um, go to Gilgal in seven days and I'll show up and we'll have a sacrifice. Then you have in the intervening period, you have this battle at Jabesh-Gilead. So it looks like things went, uh, these events are unfolding pretty pretty quickly. And then Samuel is going to uh, crown uh, crown Saul. Verse 1, Samuel says to all Israel, this is in chapter 12, um, that we're going to uh, anoint, uh, crown uh, Saul king over all of you. And then he gives them a, a lengthy, and this will be an interesting study to go through this, he goes through and he talks about how the fact that having a king was something they asked for, it was wrong, but God is giving them a king. And he basically says, and I had nothing to do with this. Okay, I am absolving myself of any responsibility because this isn't going to turn out good. And he um, he goes on in that vein for a while. And then he reminds the people of the faithfulness of God. And this um, this begins in about verse um, uh, verse six or 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 seven. Uh, as we go through here in verse six, he reviews God's God's faithfulness, and he reminds them, "It's the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron. It's the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt." It is, he goes on, he talks about the faithfulness of God during the period of the judges uh, and delivering them from Sisera, uh, delivering them from the Philistines, delivering them from the king of Moab. And as he says this, then the people cried out to the Lord and said, we've sinned because we've forsaken the Lord and served the Baals. And the, no, that, that's, excuse me, that's too early in the story. Um, every time they were oppressed, he's reminding them that every time this happened, the people turned back to God and they confessed their sin and God delivered them. So he sent these deliverers, Jeroboam, which was another name for Gideon, uh, Barak, Bedan in the New King James, which is based on a, there's a lot of corruption in names. Uh, we'll get into this, but, but the other, other versions like the Syriac and the Septuagint have these, the names correct as Barak there, Jephthah, and Samuel is mentioned next, but in, uh, several of the transla- ancient translations, it's, of course, Samson who is his mentioned there. And then he goes on, or Sam- Samuel goes on and confronts them now in verse 13. He says, now you have a king who you've chosen. Verse 14, if you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. In other words, there's that that a hypothetical again. If you obey the Lord, he's going to give you the victory over the Philistines. Earlier I pointed out, he said this about Saul, if he obeys the Lord, God will give him victory over the Philistines. Samuel is stating the same thing again. If you stand and see what the Lord will do, then he will deliver you. And then he gives them an immediate sign of God's power that he can do this. And what happens is described in verse verse, six, uh, verse 17. It's a time of the wheat ha- harvest, which takes place um, in, in the late spring, which is when it's not the rainy time. And so there's this thunderstorm that comes up, 
and and it rains, and the people know that this is a sign from God, and so their response is to what? To confess their sin. That's what I mistakenly started to say back in verse 11. Verse 18, or excuse me, verse, verse 19, And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all of our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. Then Samuel said to the people, Don't fear. You've done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve him with all your heart. In other words, there's forgiveness. God will provide. If you walk in obedience, God will give you victory over over your enemies. And the bottom line is, fear the Lord. Verse 24, fear the Lord. Serve him in truth with all your heart. Um, But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And there's the, the drum roll of the evil that's going to come. Now, when we come to chapters 13 through 15, this is where we see the problem of Saul's character showing itself. He usurps priestly authority while he's waiting uh, for Samuel at Gilgal. Now, we're going to have some dicey things to figure out uh, chronologically because it looks like the end of chapter 10... uh, at the end of chapter 10, Samuel tells him to, to, you've got seven days, go and wait for me in, in, in Gilgal. And now it looks like all these other things have taken place. And when we come to uh, the beginning of 13, if you have a new King James or King James, it reads like this. Saul reigned one year, and we, when he had reigned two years over Israel. But the problem is when you read it in um, some other translations, uh, for example, in uh, the New American Standard, it reads, Saul was, and then it has in brackets, Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he ruled over Israel for 40 years. So if he's, and other translations will say he reigned 40, he was 40 when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. So if, that would mean he was 80 when he died at Mount Gilboa. If New American Standard's guess, and that's what it is, is right, then he's 70 when he dies at Mount Gilboa. The problem is the Masoretic text lost the number. And so there's not a number there. So this we'll get into the details of this uh, more when we get there. But it also brings up an issue of what is going on here in relation to the chronology in Saul's uh, early reign. And so he goes to Gilgal, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and um, and the problem is, is Samuel delays, and he doesn't get there in time, and so Saul is concerned about uh, the defeat that's coming. Down in verse 8 we read, Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him, And so Saul went ahead impatiently and said, well, I'm going to do it and bring a burnt offering and peace offerings to me. And he offered the offerings, acting like a priest, illegitimately. And as soon as he's finished presenting the burnt offering, uh, Samuel came and Samuel will rebuke him in verse 11. What have you done? Uh, When I saw that people were scattered from me, that you did not come. uh, Oh, this is Saul's rationale. The people scattered. I got impatient. You didn't show up. So I went ahead to do this. And then Samuel will say to him in verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. So this is when it's announced that you're not going to have a dynasty. 
Your descendants are not going to sit on the throne. You have demonstrated that you are disobedient to the Lord, and that's not the kind of king that God wants because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. So Samuel arose, went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, which was about 600 men. Then we have this interesting little interlude. This is arms control in the ancient world, verses 16 through 23, where we learn that the Philistines wouldn't let the Israelites have iron weapons. There were no blacksmiths in the land. So they, they negated the Second Amendment for Israel at that time. They could only have the inferior bronze weapons. And incidentally, there's a silly debate going on right now among some evangelical leaders that uh, I just read something about three or four days ago, and then Tommy sent me an article today, uh, a, another link on this, that some evangelical leaders are beginning to say, this really isn't Christian to have a concealed handgun license. And it's what about the fact that in Luke, Jesus told the disciples to bring swords? A time is going to come, sell your cloaks and buy swords. Uh, self-defense is clearly within Scripture. And just this, these inane idiots that lead evangelicals are just so, so, so theologically impoverished and biblically illiterate, it's amazing. Uh, they've been educated beyond their level of, of uh, intelligence and credibility. But anyhow, that's what's happening here is that Israel, and then when they come into this major battle that they're about to, f- to fight, the only ones with, wo- with iron weapons, with swords, are Saul and Jonathan. The, the rest of the Israelites don't have uh, anything to fight with. So this is described in chapter 14, which is a, a huge battle and very technical. We'll have to look at a lot of maps and geography to sort this out but how God uh, miraculously gives Saul and his servant the ability to defeat uh, the, the Philistines at this particular point. And then Saul makes this extremely rash oath uh, that, that nobody should eat until we've won the battle. And, of course, that just means that nobody's going to have the nourishment they need and they're going to grow faint and they're going to grow weary. And Jonathan ate. And so then Saul finds out eventually that Jonathan disobeyed his command uh, to fast uh, until the battle was won, and he's going to kill Saul. But this is where the people intervened against bad leadership and stopped Saul from, from implementing a bad law. So that does give a precedent in the Scripture. It doesn't mean they disobeyed him, but it was a bad law, so they stopped him. They didn't kick him out of power. They didn't rebel against Saul, but they stopped him from from fulfilling a foolish and bad vow that would have brought about the death of, of Jonathan. And so then we come to chapter 15, which is where the, the, uh, it reaches the, the nadir of, of Saul's reign, and he is instructed to go into battle against the Amalekites. And so he's going to go down into the south, into the Negev, which is where the Amalekites had a stronghold, and he is instructed, this is the last uh, instruction in Scripture related to um, holy war, true biblical holy war to destroy uh, the Amalekites, and the command is given in verse 3, now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkeys. And so Saul gathers the people, 
Uh, there's 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men from Judah. So he's got two. Now he's down from 330 to 210,000 in, in the army. And they attack uh, the uh, Amalekites. But Saul doesn't want to destroy them all. So he leaves a number of them in, alive, including Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Now, this is going to show up badly later on in Israel's history because at the time of Esther, there is an Amalekite called an Agagite. He's a descendant of Agag, whose part of his line was left alive. And Haman is virulently anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic, and he devises a plot in, in the uh, Persian Empire so that all of the Jews will be slaughtered. He is sort of a foreshadowing of, of Adolf Hitler. But God turns the tables on Haman. But that whole episode with Haman and the attempt to destroy the Jews at the time of Esther wouldn't have taken place if Saul had just done his duty and... Uh, totally annihilated all of the Amalekites in chapter 15. But he doesn't do it. And so Samuel shows up, and Samuel confronts him. And verse 11 says, I greatly regret that I've set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me. He's announcing God's condemnation um, on the people. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. He says this, and he grieves Samuel that he has to do this. So he goes to Saul, and he says, what's this bleeding I hear? And these oxen, these sheep are all alive, and Agag's alive. And then Samuel, I mean, Saul is going to justify all this with his rationale. Well, it's a lot of good stuff, and uh, we killed most of them, but, but we want to save the good stuff, and we'll sacrifice it to God. People always want to give something a religious rationale to make it look good. And so... Samuel says, just basically shut up. Uh, New King James is too polite. He just tells him to stuff it and shut up. And I'll tell you what the Lord said to me. And Samuel says, when you were little in your own eyes, verse 17, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And didn't the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission, told you to destroy everything. Why didn't you obey the voice of the Lord? And then he nails it. And this is one of the most important verses in the scripture, verses 22 and 23, Samuel says, has the Lord as great a delight in birth offerings and sacrifices? Don't just go through the formal ritual of showing up at church and opening up your Bible and taking notes, but God is looking for an internal heart attitude of obedience. He would rather have obedience than sacrifice. And then in verse 23, he says, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Witchcraft is demonism. Who's the source of demonism? Satan. So what was Satan's original sin? He disobeyed the authority of God. So this is why Samuel says rebellion, any rebellion against a legitimate authority is like the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. And so this is when it is formally announced to everyone that the kingdom has been taken uh, taken from Saul. In verse 28, he says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie. Great verse on the character of God. The strength of Israel, that's an title for God, 
will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Now, Saul is going to be very remorseful, but he's not repentant. He doesn't change. He says, I've sinned. In other words, I don't like these consequences. Take it away. And Samuel says, no, God has given you your chance. Uh, Samuel turns his back on Saul. Uh, Saul worships the Lord, but it's too late. And one of my favorite scenes, if you've ever seen the film that was done of King David um, back in the back in the mid '80s, where Edward Woodward was uh, King Saul, and uh, what's his name? Who was uh, David? Gear Richard Gear was David, and there's this great scene where Samuel comes into this tent where Saul is. And you hear the sheep and the cattle, and he goes through this whole, it's just the, 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 the script is just word for word out of the scripture. And then they just choreographed it perfectly. Saul begins to turn away from, from Samuel, and in just one slick movement, Samuel pulls Saul's broadsword out and whirls and just cleanly decapitates Agag. It is a fabulous scene. This is how a man of God operates. He is not this passive, wimpy kind of person that modern liberals present. He takes a stand to defend the reputation of God. And that's what Samuel does here. Is he decapitates Agag and hacks him into pieces before the Lord in Agag. One of my favorite passages of Scripture. So, and then Samuel leaves Saul, never more to see him, And nevertheless, we read at the conclusion, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king of Israel. And so at the end, we're at the pit. This has turned out very, very badly. Is there any hope for Israel? Yes, there is. And in chapter 16, God is going to send Samuel to anoint David. And so we see the solution is always going to be going back to the grace of God, to someone whose heart is devoted to God, rather than someone who is sold out to human viewpoint. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity we've had to study and reflect upon this section tonight and the many lessons that we're going to learn here related to who you are, your righteousness, your integrity, your justice, and how this has played out in human history, lessons related to your sovereignty as well as uh, individual human volition. And, Father, we look forward to reading through this again and again, coming to understand the uh, tremendous lessons that you have to teach us in regard to how you rule over the affairs of men. And we pray that we might be uh, not like Saul, but like David, men and women whose hearts are focused upon you, who can uh, truly desire to serve you, to know you, to know your word, that our lives would be changed and transformed into the uh, character of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.